Hi, I'm Vincent Andrusani, and this is episode eight of The Place of Sound. Thanks very much for tuning in to this episode, and thanks also to those who've been following along through the first few episodes of the show. For those who are listening for the first time, The Place of Sound is a show that explores the theme of space, or the social geography, using sound and listening. We do so through a variety of audio media production formats, so you can expect to do a few different types of listening in a single show. Episodes consist of what we refer to as audio portraits, or oral history-style interviews that explore the topic of home. Soundscape compositions, which use everyday sounds to communicate the personal and social significance of a given place. And we typically end the episode with a short documentary-style piece that, over recent months, has explored the topic of social isolation, something we know all too well as a result of our lockdown experiences. These are the types of projects that you can expect to hear on The Place of Sound, and all of them are produced by students here at Carleton University. They're what gets produced in Comms 4501, Digital Media Production, which is a fourth-year workshop course in the Communication and Media Studies program. But in this episode, we're going to do something a little different. This episode is the second in a two-part series that features an interview with Vancouver-based soundscape composer, ecologist, and educator, Hildegard Westerkamp. If you've yet to listen to part one, you can do that by checking out episode 10 of the show, which you can find on both ckcufm.com and on theplaceofsound.ca. The interview was recorded in the winter of 2021 for my fourth year digital media production course. Throughout it, Hildegard and I discuss her unique approach to soundscape composition, and we explore her widely known piece, Kitts Beach Soundwalk. We talk about the composition, how it came about, why she felt the need to create it, and how it was produced. But besides this particular composition, Hildegard also discusses composition more broadly by answering questions like, why would we do soundscape composition in the first place? What purpose does it serve? And why would we want to share this work with others? So whether or not you fancy yourself as a soundscape composer, there's a lot of great insight here about producing audio, about telling stories with audio, which In light of the popularity of podcasting nowadays, it's an important and timely conversation to have. So I hope you enjoy the second half of the interview, which I'm thrilled to be able to present here on The Place of Sound. Right, right, of course. So, so... Walk me through your decision about um, what story about Kitts Beach 
you wanted to tell? Did you know that when you got to Kitts Beach, did you know this was the, the I mean, I, I can imagine we send 10 people to Kitts Beach and you're going to get, and to do, to do field recordings and you're going to get 10 wildly different soundscape compositions of Kitts Beach. Um, how did you know what you wanted to say about Kitts Beach? I didn't knew nothing. I knew nothing. This piece is really interesting to me, and it's interesting to me that it gets so much attention because it literally came out of nowhere. <clears throat> I went to Kids Beach one evening without a recorder, and I was standing at the beach, and it was that what I described. It was that very calm thing. And I hear this yeah. these barnacle sounds. And I, I came to the beach very wrought up about something. I can't remember what it was. I was angry. And this just sort of got me out of that. And I hear this and I think I've got to go home and get my recorder and record this. So I rush back home. <laughs> I go to, back to Kids Beach and it's dark. It's in, in the, at night and I record. And that was it for a while. And um, at the same time, this was like I had done my master's thesis. I'd been thinking a lot about all sorts of things and there was ideas about high frequency sounds and the effect on on our brains and like all the ideas that are coming up in the piece were sort of floating around in me and um then what i i, I think if i remember this correctly i played around with the recording uh, the field recording that i'd made and with high frequencies and i had already gathered a lot of high frequencies from processing for other compositions. Mm -hmm. And so I had this sort of bank of uh, high frequency sounds from natural sounds, from neon lights, from whatever, you know, whatever. And, and so I did this mix of the field recording with high frequencies. And then I was one day sitting, lying in my hammock, which is my most creative space, and I found myself writing this narrative, beginning this narrative. And of course, it wasn't quite as slick as it is now, but I also had literally had all these dreams. So I wrote down this stuff, and then... I listened back to the mix that I'd done by that time, and the narrative fit absolutely gorgeously into this whole thing. And then I refined it, like the idea of equalizing and getting rid of the city kind of came in the process. Um, and uh, then I refined it, and that's how it happened, and it all happened within a span of two weeks. I'm not normally a very quick composer, but this piece just sort of presented itself and it just happened and um the interesting thing to me was that um to come from the real kid speech into this imaginary dreamlike soundscape um was exciting but was also basically a sort of witness to what i do in my compositions um that the the sort of the processing of sounds and the the altering of the sounds that I've recorded is what um, our imagination does that anyways when we listen. We, we listen to the environment and then we process, we analyze, we interpret immediately, right? That's what we do. Um, you know, people will 
unconsciously now interpret the tone of my voice while I'm talking, right? Um, that's just part of the listening process. And, and that piece basically, I think, traces a lot of that. Uh, how, how, do we, how do we listen? What happens when we start to imagine things? What, what do we hear in, in, uh, in, in a deeper sense? How do we process our environment, our life, etc.? Right, um, mm -hmm. and it basically sort of spelled it out in a way. And um, because I always like to spell everything out, and I like to demystify, um, mm -hmm. that's why this came about. You know, mm -hmm. because it talks about what is our relationship to the environment, and how do we behave in it? How do we make sounds in it? How do we listen to it? And that is a deeply ecological question, and that's that's to me what this is all about: is speaking out about our environment and about how we listen. Right. That was going to be so. That was going to be my next question, which is, um, which is. So, I mean, I imagine everyone has their own sort of motivations for uh, composing anything for creating anything. Everyone has their own sort of um, intention, intentionality, let's say, behind it. Um, if you're thinking about, say for instance, you're thinking about uh, these types of soundscape compositions, uh, ones that pair that couple voice with, um, voice with environmental recording. Um, what do you think, maybe, I wonder if you could say something about like, what do you think the utility of these compositions are? like? Who, who, what are they for, and and what can they do once we create them and send them out into the world? Right. Um, I mean, originally when I was doing some of these pieces, um, I was more politically oriented, and some of the, you know, I did some satirical pieces. I had this sense of wanting to speak back to to I had a voice and so therefore I wanted to speak back differently than the normal media did. Um, you have something to say. We all have something to say. And the microphone gives us that voice piece. And we can say it. And that is very empowering. Um, you can think of it in a more meditative way, in the way also that you're in the environment, you're recording it, and you're contemplating the meanings about it um, to the listener, to yourself, to understand what is my relationship to this here, what's important here, and why am I recording these sounds, and why do I want to share this with the listener? Um, you may not want to spell it out. You may want to do it po poetically and mm. um, use a poem. Like I worked with my then-husband, Norbert Rupsat, um, who done a, a wonderful poem about the downtown east side in Vancouver called A Walk Through the City. And when I read that poem, I thought, oh, I would like to work with this. There is a language there that speaks about that space in a way that I wouldn't. And um, I really liked the way he expressed that. And so then I went to gather the sounds that I wanted to use in order to put us into the downtown east side and recorded some of the voices there and all that. Um, and that was, Co-op Radio at the time was in, the, well, it still is, in the downtown east side. And so I was exposed to that all the time when I would go to Co-op Radio, and I would have to go through 
a square, Pigeon Square, where the square. yeah, where the people that were addicted to alcohol at the time, mostly alcohol, uh, were sitting and 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 talking and being noisy and and whatever. Uh, and so you know, we even kind of rec- knew some of the people and recognized them. Um, so the listener then would be placed into that environment. And to me, that was a way of saying, look, this is what's happening down here. And this is the soundscape mm-hmm. that people are exposed to. Are we surprised that there are people mm-hmm. suffering? That there's something going on here we need to... And I did that very consciously at the time. It was a commission from the uh, program on CBC Two New Hours, which was a contemporary music program. And I, at that point, felt, yep, I want to put this onto the contemporary new music program of the CBC and want them to listen to the voices of the downtown east side. That was, to me, a political statement. We need to hear this within the much more abstract contemporary music um, arena, right? Mm-hmm. So a very conscious decision. And I felt um, I felt a little bit, um, I didn't feel nervous. I felt like um, I was doing, I was taking a step out um, as a, as a, um, I wasn't a normal composer here. Mm-hmm. You know, I was, I was letting the, the, um, sounds speak for themselves and the poetry and uh, felt slightly revolutionarily about that <laughs> at the mm-hmm. time. Um, so I think um, when we want to say something and we put this on a microphone, we understand why we're doing it. We're doing it because we have something to say. Well, environmental sounds have a huge amount of thing to say to us too. They tell us a lot. And if you then do a combination of words and this language of the soundscape, then you have another layer of something to say. So they speak together, right? And that to me has always been very, very exciting because it's not just me holding forth, right? It's me in interaction with the environment that's in, in, in dire straits in, and, or it's in uh, beautiful. And I want to share that. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think this leads into another nice idea, uh, or is a nice segue into the next idea, which is, um, I wonder if you could say something about the audience and how they figure into your compositional process. Do you do you think about the audience? And if you do think about the audience, I mean, I get I get the sense that you do because you were thinking about, you know, how to present this on co-op radio and to use your voice and to construct a, a sort of voice based narrative to draw the ear and to draw the listener back in. Um, I wonder, how, like, how do you think about the listener or the audience when composing a piece and and how does that shape what you do or does it to what extent does it shape what you do? Yeah, I guess I do think about the listener, like what I was describing about a walk through the city. I was obviously thinking of the radio listener to the contemporary yeah. music program. I was also thinking of the producer of that program who had commissioned me, right? Um, you know, and I was also thinking, like, I want to, to rattle people a bit and wake them up and say, come on, you know. Um, so, yes, I'm thinking of the listener on that level. Um, but it's it's in connection with um, an urgency of what I feel needs to be said because of the times that we're in. And so it's, 
again, it's a combination of motivations there, right? Um, I can't say that I'm sitting down and think consciously about what the listener might experience, because you also need to be aware that once you've done a piece, the piece gets out there and there's nothing you can do. <laughs> you know, people will hear it the way they want to, and there's no control you have, and you just have to let it go. And so it either gets heard or it doesn't, or, you know, people like it or don't. Um, and so, um, yes, I think we can't help thinking of someone listening to all this because we want to be heard. As composers, we want to be heard. As radio people, we want to be heard. And um, the question then becomes, how do you want to speak? And um, are you going to be a comedian? Uh, are you doing satire? Are you doing serious um, conversation? Uh, are you wanting people to relax and be comfortable? Um, all that. And I, there's a combination, you know, I, I uh, remember when I was doing my, a very short piece called His Master's Voice, which is a collage of, uh, I don't know whether you know it, but it's a collage of, of male voices uh, in the streets and on the media. And I was no, very... I know the piece. You, you do? You don't? Oh. No, I don't know the piece. No, I haven't heard it. I'll send it to you. That was also done in the 80s. Um, and I, I was in a very uh, angry phase at that moment and feminist. And so I, I just one day, similarly to Kids Speech Soundwalk, was not a commission or anything, um, just uh, gathered voices from the media and, and also from some street recordings that I made and put it into this collage. And that, that was basically a, a satire about the macho voice, the voice that, you know, is, it shouts and wants to be and has authority or wants to have authority and the authoritarian voice. And uh, I had fun <laughs> with that. And it's a, it's a pretty, it's both satire, but it's also pretty serious because in the end I bring Hitler's voice in there. Like as I was doing all this, I suddenly thought, oh my God, this is, I've got to find Hitler's voice. Because it went beyond media and suddenly and street. As I was doing the piece, I thought, yeah, there's the ultimate authoritarian voice, right? So I found Goebbels and Hitler and, and a few other voices. Uh, so it became a piece with an edge, political edge, that was pretty, ooh, you know, uh, <laughs> um, not funny, quite serious. And yeah. um, that I didn't know when I started that piece. That, that mm -hmm. happened while I was working and listening, and, and it led me to that. And, I mean, that's basically how it's been with most of my pieces, right? Yeah. Um, so these, all these pieces I'm talking about right now are really from the 80s, uh, from the, my early time. But, you know, nothing on that level, nothing much has changed. My approach has not changed. I'm, uh, pieces emerge out of the life that is happening. And they emerge out of my interests and my uh, emphasis. Now I'm older, so the pieces are more, uh, probably more, less angry, um, maybe a little more subtle, um, maybe more meditative, 
But my last piece, Klavierklang, which is um, German for piano sound, um, basically is for, for solo piano and, and uh, a soundscape. Um, that piece is also a narrative where I talk about the difficulties of musical lessons, uh, the, 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 the really difficult aspect of classical music education and mm -hmm. how we are tortured in that. And it, it points out the, you know, the, the magical part of classical music, but it also points out the real struggle that goes on. So there's, again, there's a political thing in there and a narrative and, and um, a bit of processing of uh, life experience. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I look, just looked down and I realized we've been speaking for 40 minutes already, which is shocking to me. Um, but but I, if, 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 if you, I think we can go for, for a while on this, uh, by the way. So um, uh, for those watching and listening, we haven't caught up in far too long. And so uh, this, is a, this is a wonder, this is a, a, a joyous moment for me anyway, uh, that we have the, the opportunity to chat again. But if I might, maybe just ask you one last quick question before we, before we finish. And just to, I, I just kind of want to get you to reflect on, um, on the life of, uh, of, the, of the composition of Kitts Beach, Beach Soundwalk. When you listen to that today, how do you listen to that today? Do you listen to? Do you listen to it today? First of all, <laughs> and 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 if you do, like if you if you do or if you don't, like, um, what do you think of it? Do you do you would you have made different decisions? Are you completely satisfied with how it how it sits? Um, do you like the life that it's that it's that it's acquired? Uh, it's I mean it's being taught it's being taught in university now uh, some forty thirty five years later, right? So. 32 years later, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so... Um, <clears throat> when I listen to it, I feel pretty good about it. It, it hasn't... Uh, I, it feels like, yeah, that's what I wanted to do at the time, and I did it pretty well. Um, I, the only part where I'm always having a bit of question is the end, um, where I don't necessarily like my voice all that much in the last few statements. Um, you know, I, I would have done slightly differently, but it's not enough to want to want to go back and change it. Um, and maybe I would have changed the final sound a little bit more too. Um, but you know, those were the tools that I had at the time, and um, I don't usually go back to a piece and change it. Um, usually, I know when I'm finished with a piece, and uh, I. I cannot finish a piece if there's any part of it that makes me cringe. So I have to, you know, definitely fine tune and change. And I'm very picky about all that and very detailed. And so when I have completed a piece in most cases, most cases, I'm quite happy with it. And that hasn't changed. Um, that piece was done at that time. And so what I did then was pretty good. Um, and I'm happy with it. So I don't have any problem when I listen, when I hear it. You know, when I listen to it again, um, yeah, that's basically. Uh, so I'm I'm not surprised that it's picked up for teaching because it itself is a bit of a teaching piece. Um, you know, it 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 uh, it just it engages you in the process of listening. And I'm still quite 
I still have to smile sometimes when when I talk about getting rid of the city and you know the equalizer. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> and at the time, of course, the equalizer was an was an analog instrument. It was hardware. It was not soft. It was not a software in my computer. There was a knob that I could just do that with, right? And that's why it was also so easy to do. You could literally you know, do a certain fade of these frequencies. Um, I mean, that's the other thing. My work was analog until the 90s, right? Everything was done in an analog studio, which is very different because um, you, you don't, you're not as visually oriented. When you do your editing, you don't see the sound wave. You'd hear what's going on, and then you cut the tape, right? So the the process is much more oral. Nowadays, we are often distracted by the, the sound waves, and uh, I feel sometimes, you know, we we feel we, we've been very busy with editing, seeing all this stuff, and we're distracted from listening. And I often ask, I used to say to students, um, when you finish a piece, just don't listen to it for a while, for a few days if you have the time. Uh, put it away. And then listen to it without looking at anything and see what happens. And often they're not finished, the pieces, you know. Uh, So I think I was lucky to be part of the analog time because you had to listen in order to do any good edits. Um, And I'm not saying there's no listening happening. It's a different listening in the digital medium. And I love doing that kind of editing, you know, and that detailed volume control that you can do and all that. I love that. It's wonderful. But it does does, um, change things because it is so visual. That was excellent. That was a great way of kind of bringing it it to a close. Uh, Good words for our students uh, to think think through, you know, I often give them that that same sort of advice. It's like if this project is due at eleven fifty nine on uh, you know a certain day, then if you're working on it and you're editing it like at eleven o'clock that night just to get it in, then you're, you've rushed it. Right? Uh, you need to you need to have drafts. You need to be able to walk away. You need to come back to it with fresh ears because inevitably you're going to listen to it in the morning and say, "Whoa, that wasn't there last night," but but it was. <laughs> Yeah, because we get tired. Our ears get tired from repetition, right? When we do any kind of sound work, what's tiring is the endless repetition of what we're hearing in the studio, right? And so you need to be able to have uh, rests from that, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Hildegard, thank you so much. Um, I I can't thank you enough for taking this time. Uh, out of your day to to meet with us. In some ways, this is a bit of a blessing, um, the blessing of online learning that we're able to do things like this, you know. Yeah, um, thank you, so, Vincent. It, so, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of The Place of Sound. This was the second part of a two-part interview with Soundscape composer Hildegard Westerkamp. I'd like to thank Hildegard for being so generous with her time and for sharing her wisdom and experience 
with a new generation of audio producers, no matter which genre they're working in. If you're interested in learning more about Hildegard and her body of work, you can check out her personal website at hildegardwesterkamp.ca. And lastly, I'd like to thank you, the listener, for tuning in to this two-part series and for listening to The Place of Sound. Until next time.